0: And as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we are learning that Paul is presenting to us two ways to live. The way of the world and the way of love. The way of the world, or as Paul would put it, a merely human way of living versus the way of love, which is true spirituality. How God the Spirit changes us from the inside out. And so, the way of the world and the way of love are the two options before us. The way of the world we have been seeing looks powerful and looks wise, but is actually weak and foolish. The way of love, on the other hand, looks weak and looks foolish, but is true power and wisdom. And we know this because the clearest picture of this way of love is the cross. What Paul has been doing in these first few chapters is laying before us the cross of Jesus as true power and true wisdom. Even though it looks to the world's eyes as ultimate losing and folly. The cross is where Jesus lost. It was mocked as a fool. But that place, Paul tells us, of loss and foolishness is where God's power is most reliably present. I mean, it's at the cross that God unleashed the revolution and defeated his enemies and ours. this foolish, losing cross. And one of Paul's big arguments we've seen in 1 Corinthians is that followers of Jesus are not just saved by this cross, but are actually shaped like this cross. We are rescued from the way of the world and picked up, like I pick up my three year old, and dropped down firmly in the way of love. We're not just saved from our sins. Which is glorious enough. We're actually saved to a different way of living. That's shaped like the cross. It's called the way of love. And this morning. We get the greatest description of the way of love that I know. It's the way of love manifesto. If you want to call it something. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And I predict You will have trouble believing it's true. But if the Spirit convinces you this morning, it could change everything about your life. Let's begin reading in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So Paul is, is, is bringing before us once again this contrast between the way of the world and the way of love. The way of the world thinks it's wise and powerful, but here we see again that it's futile. Verse 21 So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. I'll say it again. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. These are rulers or or leaders in their day. Or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Lord, would you speak this morning, for your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Josie and I don't watch too much television together. If you know us well, you know that's true, and you also know that's all my fault. Okay, because usually I fall asleep or I lose interest. No matter how good the show may be, no matter how well written the show may be, I either lose interest or fall asleep, which is kind of the same thing. And, uh, but there's one exception, and you know this if you know my wife well. We love to watch the Home Shopping Network together. <laughs> Okay? Uh, Not for the shopping, but for the comedy. And here's why. My wife, and I think she's correct, claims that the home shopping network is funnier than anything else on TV running. But I'll say this from time to time, we stop laughing and we say, wait, this isn't funny. Oh, this is really scary. The home shopping network has human nature. Nailed down. They like they know the heart of man and woman. They know that we are sort of insecure to our core. They know that we all struggle with FOMO, fear of missing out. And so they put a timer in the top corner and they say, "You're going to miss out on this amazing thing if you don't purchase this right now. And if you don't, and if you can't afford it, which we assume you can't afford it, then we will put it down into payments so as to deceive you that you can't afford it. Right? It's really actually kind of scary. But it's also funny, so we watch it and laugh. In our sober moments, we know that we're being scammed and that they hire the best artists possible. Uh, but we don't need to turn to the Home Shopping Network uh, to see this. It's everywhere. It's in every single advertisement. Every single commercial uh, does this. They over-promise and they under-deliver. Am I right? Almost every single thing that we encounter, it doesn't even have to be an advertisement, over-promises and under-delivers. I remember as a kid, I used to look forward to Sundays, not frankly, because of church, but because you had in the big Sunday paper uh, the advertisement pages. Do you remember this? The, do you remember this? The advertisement pages. And so I'll pull out the Target advertisement pages, and I would look that thing over, and I would see something that I really wanted. And I remember seeing a watch, and I thought to myself, the way this watch is is presented, this will solve all of my problems, you know, as like an 11-year-old kid. This thing is amazing. And when I saved up, and I went to Target, and I bought the thing, it just, it just just sort of you know had numbers on it. <laughs> that's that's it, that's all I did. I was so disappointed. One of my favorite quotes is by a poet named Stephen Dunn. If I had my slide projector thingy, I would show it to you. Okay. Most of the language used in a day, I would say maybe about 75% of it, is designed to deceive. So between government speak, official speak, advertising, any of the oversimplifications you regularly are confronted with. If you're like me, he writes, you find yourself listening to or being given a world that does not resemble yours. I share that quote often and I love it because we live in a world of false advertising. And people who recognize it best are usually poets. Because it's a poet's job to describe the world correctly, as accurately as possible. And here, the laureate poet says, we live in a world of false advertising. And the problem is that we are so easily scammed. One of the core purposes of the last book in your Bible's revelation is to sort of lift the veil and say, this is what's really going on. Here's a true picture of reality behind all of the facade and all the bluster. Here's what's really going on. Do not be scammed, he says. And so here, too, Paul says the same thing. In fact, the very first line that we heard this morning in verse 18 is, Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. Paul is saying that men and women in the church in Corinth were deceiving themselves, or were at least in danger of self-deception. How so? Well, in verse 21, we see the problem stated again that we've seen over and over again in this section. Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, Paul says. He says, don't boast in men. They were over elevating and over identifying with their human leaders. And this is how culture worked in the Greco Roman period. If you wanted to feel safe, now follow. If you wanted to feel safe, if you wanted to make it in the world, then the surest thing for you is to attach yourself to a person with power. And so when these Christians in Corinth became Christians, they started to attach themselves to their pastors in unhealthy ways. They were suffering from what we could call pastoral attachment disorder. And we can do this too. We can't see Jesus with our eyes. We see Jesus moving like we see wind. But we don't see Jesus in the flesh. And so we make Jesus substitutes, do we not? And usually they're super compelling speakers who talk about Jesus. And they rise up in the church and they can even be your pastor. Pastor. Not saying I'm super compelling. Here's what happened with Paul. Paul was not super compelling. But there was a person after him that came along. His name was Apollos. And Apollos was like the TED talk of the ancient world. You know, like he he had flash. He was impressive. So they were attaching themselves to them. And then others were attaching themselves to Paul. They're like, no, Paul was the sort of the original. Let's let's hang out. I'm going I'm to attach myself to them. Others were saying Cephas, who was Peter. And so maybe that was the Jewish contingent in the church. And they're saying, no, Peter gets us. We're the Cephas party. And so on and on and on they went. And what Paul is simply saying is you have pastoral attachment disorder. You are taking the culture of Corinth and allowing it to infiltrate into the culture of the church. And there's no place for that. He's saying that's a scam, actually. Don't fall for it. You have a better pastor, Jesus. And he brings with him way better stuff. So so yeah, honor your leaders, but come on. Do not over-elevate or over-identify with them. It's a huge mistake. Why is it a huge mistake, according to Paul? Well, Paul gives us the astonishing answer in verse 21. He says, All things are yours. All things are yours. And then when you let verse 22, which follows, sink in and wash over you, it seems like an exaggeration. Paul's clearly exaggerating to make a point, right? Because he says, whether it's me, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. And then he reaffirms it. He's like, I'm being serious. It's all yours. How could he say such a thing? And why is he saying such a thing? Well, we can know why he's saying it. He's simply saying, don't claim Paul or Cephas. Uh, Don't be so over-identifying with them, because you actually have them. They don't have you, you have them. Don't get it backwards. That's why he's saying it. But how could he say this? How could he say all things are ours, life and death included? Well, two life-changing reasons, and I don't want to overcomplicate this. The first reason is this. Quite simply, you belong to Christ. And since Jesus owns everything, Paul can say with astounding confidence, all things are yours. Do you see the logic? Because you are Christ's. All things are yours because you are Christ's. And that apostrophe S at the end of Christ changes everything. It means... The most important thing in your life is that apostrophe S in verse 23. Do you believe that? The most important thing in your life is that apostrophe S in verse 23. You are Christ's possessive you belong to him that apostrophe S means we receive all that Jesus deserves and has to offer we receive Jesus' righteousness so let's say Jesus' life of perfect love of perfect obedience of beauty the true and perfect human say that life is a is a ten by being Christ's we are given that 10 it is deposited into our account and hear this a lot of us think that we're at zero because we're sinners and then Jesus comes we accept him and we get his 10 but the reality that the the Bible paints is that we're not zero we're actually negative 10 if that's the bottom. We're negative 10 because of our sins. And so Jesus doesn't come and give and sort of top us off at zero so we get a fresh start. What Jesus does is he comes and he says, No, I'm not just topping you off and forgiving you of your of your negative ten, which is forgiveness. But I'm actually giving you my plus ten. Some of us are, have the, the wrong assumption that we're about a 5 or a 4 or a 7. Some of us might think we're a 9. You're wrong. You're not a 9. You're lovely, but you're not a 9. Okay, We're all negative 10. We're all sinners. And because of this apostrophe S, yes, we get to be a 10 in God's eyes. That apostrophe S also means we receive Jesus' inheritance. So all that Jesus inherits, we now inherit. Paul writes in Ephesians, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. So in him, being in Christ, being Christ, we now have an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And listen to what he says about the Holy Spirit and what remains. In verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation and believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who does what? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it. To the praise of His glory. That's worship. We worship because of that truth. It's a cliche, I know, to say that... Men and women with trust funds live with a carefree attitude. And they might take more risks. Because they always have a security. They always have something they can lean on. Well, Christians have the largest trust fund in the cosmos. We have Jesus' inheritance. And so we can live like that. That gives us a confidence and a security that the worst case scenario in your life is no longer the worst case scenario. I mean, we all have these sort of schemes that we play through in our minds about the worst case scenario in your life, whatever it is, it could be. Because you have an inherit Christ's inheritance, you have to say that worst case scenario no longer follows Because all that is Christ's is mine. I traveled, I had the opportunity to travel to um, Jerusalem with my dad a few years ago. And one of the greatest privileges I had is that when we were at the Mount of Olives and and we were sort of looking at at the view, uh, the, the group asked me to read the Beatitudes. And as I was reading it, I'm pondering what on earth does it mean that the blessed, that the meek will inherit the earth? ever pondered that before? Like, what does that really mean? And even though a seminary educated person like myself, I still was like, what does that even mean? Confusing to me. I took a class on Matthew and, you know, probably wrote a paper on Beatitudes. Well, now I know the whole world is ours because the whole world is Christ's and we are Christ's. What this means is that we don't have any needs. Our needs are met in Jesus. And I like to call this a full cup theology. And so you see this in this picture. Our cup is so full. We have all of our needs met in this reality. But now all we can do is overflow into the lives of others. Adam Grant, who's at Wharton, says that there are really only two kinds of people, givers and takers. If you're the cups on the right, you're going to be a taker to get your cup filled. If you're the cup on the right with the inheritance of Jesus, you are going to be a giver because you have no more needs. That's the radical reality of the gospel. The gospel does not just fill us to the rim. It overflows into the lives of others. And to Paul's point, we won't overattach to people in our community or our leaders. Because we, are, we, we have everything we need in Jesus. There's another reason that we have everything, and that Paul can say that with a straight face all things are yours. And it's this we reign with Christ. We reign or we rule with King Jesus right now. And we will rule as kings and queens with King Jesus. In a fully realized sense when he returns. In a fully experienced sense. And that sounds crazy, does it not? Like, Welcome to the cult that is hope, right? When Jesus comes, we're going to be kings and queens. But this is, this is what the Bible teaches. The, people, the, the Bible says this, and Paul says this, uh, all over First Corinthians. I mean, if you were to turn the page and look at chapter 6... Starting in verse two, Paul says, do you not know that the saints, that's every Christian, everybody trusting in Jesus with empty, desperate hands of faith. Do you not know that they will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? He says in verse three, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more things pertaining to this life? We're going to get to this. But what Paul is saying is, why are you suing each other? Christians. Don't you realize that you rule with Jesus? And that one day you will actually rule over angels? In light of that reality, you ought to probably act towards each other differently. You could probably figure this out without litigating. Talking about the church. And we'll unpack what that means as we get to it. Don't miss the point though. Paul isn't making this stuff up. He's actually applying his Old Testament, which begins with his people ruling, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, verse 26, we see this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. The Bible begins with Adam and Eve ruling over the cosmos. That's how it starts. And the Bible ends with the same picture, which says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood made us a kingdom. Jesus makes his people a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. How can this be? Well, Jesus came as the perfect ruler, and in him we are restored back to our proper place. Paul says to Timothy, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we adore, we will also, here it is, reign with him. When I was uh, born, when I was born, when my son was born, uh, I texted my friend Nate and he texted back. I said, I said, good news. This happened. And uh, he texted back the most ominous thing I've ever received. He said, he will judge angels. Weird. But Nate knew his Bible. We are destined for so much more than we realize. And we sell ourselves short of all that God offers. We are so easily scammed. C.S. Lewis famously said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what we need to do in light of this astonishing passage, which says that all things are ours because we belong to Jesus and we rule with Jesus. What we need to do is we need to get more and more comfortable with what a lot of theologians have called the already not yet of Christian experience. If you want to write this down, it's a helpful way to understand the way that life is working for you right now. It's helpful because it's true. It's true. Because it's the way that the Bible impacts the way that the world is. It's the already, not yet, of Christian experience. And so Paul actually tips his cards here, and he says in verse 18, If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, or in the Greek, in this eon. And what Paul is doing is he is simply referring to a common Jewish Idea, which is that we are living in the present age. The present age, sometimes it's called the present evil age because since Adam and Eve fell, the world has been broken. And so the present age is the world as we know it in its brokenness and its injustice and its frustrating. I mean, think of your job. Many of us experience the present age as we drive in on Monday morning or our relationships. We were, we were offered a sort of vision of what relationships would look like in the church. And then our experience of them seemed to look a lot like this evil present age. Broken. But Paul also talks a lot about the age to come. And so the age to come in the Jewish mindset was this. When the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to bring on the age to come, which will be the restoration of Eden. Where Eden was perfect and life is east of Eden, this evil present age. When Messiah comes, we will be ushered back into Eden. It is the age to come. And what Paul says is the age to come has indeed arrived in the reign and rule of Jesus. But, and this is an important but, it overlaps with the present evil age. And so what we do is we live in the already not yet tension between these two ages. We are raised with Christ, the Bible says. No qualifications. You are raised with Christ. And yet, we are not raised with Christ. We have to wait for Him to come back before we are actually physically raised with Christ. So there's a tension. We are already saved, past, present, future. And yet, the Bible often says, you will be saved when Jesus returns. There's that tension again. All things are ours in Christ, says Paul. But our experience tells us that we suffer injustice and hardship. We're like sheep being led to the slaughter. All you have to do is be honest with your life and open up the news on your phone to be aware that there's something going on. We are not experiencing the fullness of all things are yours. And so we need to get comfortable living in this tension. The already and the not yet. Already all things are yours and not yet fully experienced and realized in your life. Paul expects this already not yet theology to help struggling and sinning believers make it in life. And he expects this tension to create a certain way of daily living. In this case, as we've been saying over and over again, the over elevation of human leaders was inappropriate. Over identifying with your human leaders over um, over elevating your human leader was a failure to lean into the fact that they already have everything. They rule with Jesus. They have an inheritance, and Jesus is King. But we can apply it to all kinds of different aspects. Wherever you are frustrated, this paradigm will help you. Are you frustrated at work? I think Paul would say lean into your inheritance. You are sensing the not yetness of your inheritance when you are frustrated at work. So, what you need to do is you need to put a little more weight on the all readiness that you reign with Jesus. Are you concerned about political reality in America? Consider what is true about the church. Whatever's going on in your life, Paul's going to say, All things are yours. This is Paul's heartbeat that we would be a community. That does this now if we allow this passage to define us i think one thing would happen as a community we will become incredibly bold at one hand, on the one hand and yet we will also become incredibly self-effacing and, and, and humble the already not yet is a recipe for humble boldness here's what i mean at our adventure weekend is mike pratz in the room good i can talk to him talk about him um, uh, just kidding. Uh, we discovered this sort of hidden cove as we were on a hike. And this is hidden cove, it looked like it was straight out of Eden, actually. I mean, it was just like running water through it. It was un, un, untainted by by anything. And we discovered it, and we walked into it. And most of us were a bit hesitant to go in. <coughs> it required kind of a, a steep descent and a steep ascent, and there was all kinds of danger all around. But Mike Pratt's, like, he sort of came alive in front of us. Uh, and so he was like running down these things and he was jumping over rocks and he was climbing up trees, like really high up trees and climbing down them. And he was he was like ruling the place is what was happening. That to me is the posture of every Christian. We ought to walk around this world like we rule the place. Boldness. We are royalty over God's cosmos. We are meant to explore it in all of its beauty. But humility, because while all things are ours, it's only ours because why? We are in Christ. He is the point. In fact, think of it this way. One of the major problems in Corinth with the over-elevation of the human leaders is what's the inverse of the over-elevating a human leader? Under-elevating Jesus. And so we will be bold as Jesus restores us to our calling. But we will also be humble because we are under the rule of Jesus. And it's only because of Him that we have restoration. We will not present ourselves in arrogant ways to our co-workers or to our neighbors. How could we? We're Christ's. But we ought to have a posture that is different. One that says, I have an inheritance. My worst case is no longer worst case. And so we can lean into things with a little bit more boldness. A little bit more faith. Understanding that again... If this all goes wrong, I'm Christ's. So I don't know what that stirs in you this morning, but we will pray that we would all as a church lean into this identity we have. Lord, we come to your presence this morning and we ask that we would claim the inheritance that you give us in Christ. Thank you for sending your spirit to be the guarantee of that inheritance. Help us to live like it. Give us a boldness in this life, but also a humility. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.